Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be here. And Haley Knopf. Hello, hello. Guys, uh, I have an interesting news item to start us off. We have a very exciting show today, but something that came across the wire yesterday, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which is based in Philadelphia, you guys might have seen this, they adopted a proposal that requires most legal filings documents with the court to be filed not by midnight, which is the standard practice of federal courts, but by 5 p.m., the close of the business day. And, um, you know, this was actually a pretty hotly contested piece of rulemaking among the bar that uh, litigates at that court. But as journalists, I'm pretty thankful for it. Uh, Haley, I know you in your day have babysat some dockets before, and it can get indeed a little bit arduous when you're waiting till all hours of the night. I don't mean to suggest that there are not pressing circumstances, and the rule does have some carve-outs for certain emergent filings and things like that, but I welcome a change like this. Amber, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, I generally agree with you, Alex. It's always good to have them earlier in the day so we can write about things here at Law360. However, it is going to probably plague some of our West Coast colleagues who may be the ones that are tasked with writing those because their schedules are different than us well, on the East Coast. Well, right? no, but, but the I whole point say, is that we on the... Go ahead, Haley. I think we're going to make the same point. Yeah. I, I mean, 5 p.m. Eastern is 2 p.m. for me. So right, I'm so down. Like middle of your day. I'm fine yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's when they are coming in at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. for me, and then it's hard to get in touch with people and... I would yeah. say that, you know, maybe this is an object lesson for all the other circuits out there. I That's mean, what I'm saying. Come on, yeah. get on our journalist schedule. Make it easy for us. That's what we need. That's what I'm saying. Uh, look Please. out for number one. Um, <laughs> yeah, a couple other courts have like bounced around with rules like this, but I think this is like the highest level court that has done something like this. Something to monitor across the judiciary. In any case, uh, we have a very interesting show this week. Later on, I will be talking to... One of our senior reporters, Nathan Hale, who is based in Florida, crucially for this story because we are digging into the Walt Disney Company versus Ron DeSantis legal fracas. Uh, I think most people know by now that the Disney Company sued DeSantis and the state last week. And actually, the state board sued Disney back this week. This began as like a very political fight over the passing of this Florida education law and has now taken a sharp turn into some really thorny, like municipal politics type of stuff, municipal ordinance stuff, uh, where D Disney has this like self-governing district with this huge plot of land in central Florida. And there's a lot at stake here. And Nathan was kind enough to come by and break that all down for us. So stay tuned for that. I'm really looking forward to that one, Alex, because so much of the coverage has been just about, you know, DeSantis is potentially running for president. A lot of coverage about him in the national news and what it means for politics, but so little about the actual ins and outs of what these lawsuits are over. But I do want to turn to a story that broke in our favor just before the show. We did get a verdict in a big case that was closely watched. So I want to tell everybody about it hot off the presses. A jury decided that pop singer Ed Sheeran did not copy Marvin Gaye's classic Let's Get It On for his 2014 hit Thinking Out Loud. The jury in this case had deliberated only for two and a half hours, so really quick, before they gave Sheeran a win, and it's surely one of the biggest copyright cases of the year. Before we get too far into things, let's remind everybody about these two songs. First, let's hear a little bit of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. I've been really trying 
And for comparison, let's also hear a little bit of Ed Sheeran's Thinking Out Loud. When my hair's all begun and my memory fades And the crowds don't remember my name Finally, we have a verdict that works with Pro Se's production schedule. I, I realize this is not our biggest takeaway here, but I'm... <laughs> it is for me, because we talked about how circuit courts are getting on board with giving us better deadlines, and now, like, we're getting jury verdicts in time for Pro Se to talk about it the day it happens. This is great. Everything's falling into place. But okay, so these are both pop songs, but what's the alleged overlap here? So this suit was actually a pretty long-running one. It dates back to 2016. It had some COVID delays along the way. The family of Ed Townsend, who's the deceased co-writer of Let's Get It On, said that Sheeran lifted the chords, the rhythm, and the melody from that song. Sheeran, who was sued along with Atlantic Records and Sony Music Publishing, said the only similarities between the two songs are commonplace chord progressions. And basically, that the overlap is you know, musical building blocks that, that no one should be able to own. That is, in fact, what the jury agreed with. So Ed Sheeran won this one. The trial itself took six days. It included some very notable happenings. I do want to talk about some of that with you guys. The jury heard testimony from dueling musicologists, the sole living plaintiff in the case. Sheeran himself took the witness stand and even played the guitar in the courtroom. It's really something to turn a courtroom into the frat party where the guy pulls out the guitar and is like, oh my God, this guy is doing it again. I did just want to offer, I know we're not, this space is not really reserved for Let's Get It On as a classic song. I just wanted to say something about this Ed Sheeran song. As somebody who attended a lot of weddings in 2015 and 2016, this has been like seared into my mind. Oh, I've no. lost track of the number of first dances to oh, that Ed Alex. Sheeran song. Oh, I'm my so Lord. Sorry. I'm so glad you brought this up because... Well, there's no accounting for taste of my friends. Here's but, the thing. You know. Well, I would like to go on the record. I am the one person in this group that actually does like Ed, Ed Sheeran, so... No, I, he's, he's got some okay songs, but... I don't, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I've been trying to dive deep within myself and figure out why I don't like him, but I, have, I don't have an answer for that yet. So well, let's... I think it's some classic pop, but here we go. So I'm glad you brought up weddings for this reason. Yeah. I wanted to kick off talking about the trial itself with a jury selection, which normally can be a bit of a snooze. But in this case, it was pretty interesting. The process eliminated people with professional backgrounds in music and also Sheeran fans from the jury pool. <laughs> so among those excused was a man who said he used to work in the music industry and knew some Sony people, another person pursuing a PhD in musicology. And then here's the tie-in for you, Alex. Um, two people were cut for fandom. One was a woman who said she had two teenage daughters who love Ed Sheeran. And the other one said that his track, Perfect, was her wedding song. So those yeah. people were out. Once we got into the meat of the trial, the plaintiff, Catherine Griffin Townsend, she wore a coat with the word integrity on the back. I just want to throw that in there as just a fun little detail. This trial really was very splashy. We have a lot of coverage of this as well. So if people get intrigued by any of these details, they can come back and read some of our stories. But more dramatically, she actually collapsed on the third day of trial and was taken to the hospital. She did recover, come back to court, and actually was embraced by Ed Sheeran. So just a lot what? to watch in what was going wow. on here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is notable. But also of note, Towson's lawyers included Ben Crump. And if that name at all sounds familiar, that's a noted civil rights lawyer who'd represented the families of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. 
I think some of the interest in this case was that Marvin Gaye and the Towson family are African-American, and there's some conversation around this case about the co-opting of that yeah. musical style by white musicians, so which, you know, obviously Ed Sheeran is white. So that really wasn't the meat of the legal arguments here, but that sort of explains his interest in the case. Okay, well, what about this, uh, as Alex so correctly put it, this frat party porch situation of some dude <laughs> pulling out a guitar and playing in a moment when perhaps that is not anticipated? <laughs> I suspect it was more germane, but I yeah, don't know. It, yeah, it sure was, and I'll get to it. You guys call it frat party, like playing on the couch, pulling out his guitar and holding people hostage to that moment. I say private judicial concert, but you know, potato, potato. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Well, what was the what was the context? <laughs> yeah, Sheeran testified two different days. He explained that he created Thinking Out Loud with his writing partner Amy Wodge, and that it was inspired by these decades-long loves that both of them had observed in their families. That's sort of the content of the lyrics. The Towson heirs had played a concert video showing Sheeran seamlessly going back and forth between Thinking Out Loud and Let's Get It On at the show, and they called it a smoking gun for infringement. But in his testimony, he said he frequently mashes up pop songs, and that actually proves his point, that there's so many pop songs with similar chord progressions that it's really easy to do it. And so he pointed to that example and also a bunch of other songs that he would use interchangeably in that same way and had this quote, if I'd done what you're accusing me of doing, I'd be an idiot to stand on stage and do the let's get it on mashup in front of 20,000 people. So some spicy testimony from Ed Sheeran, I would say. That's like the Catherine Trammell in uh, Basic Instinct, where she's like, would I, would I really write a book where someone kills someone <laughs> right. and then I murder somebody in real life <laughs> just like that? Would I do that? Anyway, the, he, was, he, he got off, so it's fine. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> fine as far as he's concerned. So, so that was some of the spicy testimony. But then in terms of the playing, he came back for a second day of testifying countered some of the testimony of an expert witness by playing an acoustic guitar in the witness box to show that the chord progression at the core of both tunes, while very similar, is not identical. So that was the purpose of him playing a chord. That's kind of amazing to me, not to like play armchair musicology expert, but the idea that it's kind of like the OJ glove thing where you let the actual defendant get his hands on the crucial piece of evidence with the idea of like yeah. not just having some neutral guitar player play the I mean it's probably it, it has merit but the idea of him himself being like here's how it's a little different to but, your point Alex Ed yeah. Sheeran in that testimony even said I know what chords I'm playing right this second right like, I can show you yeah. so it really <laughs> was that it's you know I think for the people who were there in person I'm sure it was pretty compelling and clearly it, it definitely made for a lively trial. And so why is this case so important? You called it one of the biggest copyright cases of the year as a perhaps I'll steal Alex's term again as an armchair musicologist <laughs> here. I I guess I don't fully see why this would be one of the biggest. Yeah, I mean, it's not just because I like Ed Sheeran and think it's kind of charming that he was playing the guitar in court. It's important for a lot of legal reasons for copyright watchers and for the music industry. So at its core, this case is about the originality of pop music. And the central question there is, are some basic elements like chord progressions and the like so commonplace mm -hmm. that they're free for any musician to use? Or can they be protected by copyright and therefore owned by a single creator? And you can see how that could really ripple through the music industry depending on how things turn out. 
And in fact, a bunch of previous cases have looked at this and raised fears among musicians that inspiration can pretty easily, in some circumstances, tip into copyright infringement. So just to refresh people, you'll probably remember, this one was huge. Back in 2015, Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams, their song Blurred Lines, was found to have infringed, yes, another Marvin Gaye song, Gotta Give It Up. So that was a huge one in this copyright space. But a couple years later, Led Zeppelin actually won an appeals court victory related to Stairway to Heaven. And that sort of leveled things back out a bit in this copyright space around music because that one was about common what, what Led Zeppelin said was a commonplace, simple chord progression. So we sort of got back to a stasis there. And this case put those same kind of arguments back into play. It was widely reported that Sheeran said if he lost this case, he'd quit music. I mean, he was taking it that seriously, except our own Rachel Scharf, who did great reporting throughout this trial. She was there for that exchange from Ed Sheeran where he essentially said, I'm done. And her interpretation was a bit different and a bit more in line with the precedent. She thought what he meant by saying I'm done was that if he lost, it would be really hard for songwriters like him to create music at all with any basic building blocks. And that's why he said, I'm done. All right. That makes sense. Right. So you can see why this one had musicians pretty freaked out. That's the Law 360 difference. You know, everybody ran with that. He'll quit the thing. And Rachel giving us some nuance there. Thank you, Rachel Scharf. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, after winning this case, I'm going to read a little bit of a lengthy quote, but this is what Ed Sheeran said immediately after the win today. If the jury had decided this matter the other way, we might as well say goodbye to the creative freedom of songwriters. We need to be able to write our original music and engage in independent creation without worrying at every step of the way that such creativity will be wrongly called into question. I'm just a guy with a guitar who loves writing music for people to enjoy. I'm not and will never allow myself to be a piggy bank for anyone to shake. So that's a Sheeran's take on it. Meanwhile, Towson said she stood up for her father's intellectual property and noted that she was, quote, up against an army. You know, you'd think that they're at Big odds here. This is a big trial, closely watched. But there's a little bit of human news I'd like to end on. And that's that she also went on to say she was glad to have finally spoken one-on-one with Ed Sheeran and that they had a fairly friendly rapport throughout this process. He even invited her to a show on his tour. And Towson said at the end of all of this that, quote, if we'd been able to just talk, we wouldn't be here today. Wow. Well, that's a new strategy for getting concert tickets. Yeah. You sue someone, <laughs> sure. accuse them of copyright infringement, and then... Hope their tour lines up correctly with, you know, <laughs> exactly. when things are concluding. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. you got to kind of kind of make some big guesses. I do kind of like the humanity of all of that, though. I mean, that's why I brought it up on the show, because we so often cover... I mean, obviously, anything in court is by nature adversarial. Yeah. But every now and then, you get a little glimmer where you're like, you know what? We fought for our respective sides, believe in what we brought to court, but it's okay. Everything's fine. If we just talked this out, we're good. Well, I'm sure each of their legal teams are saying, oh, man, I'm really glad they didn't sit down and just have a conversation. And, uh, <laughs> we're losing out on a lot of business here. Anyway, uh, so that's that seems to be resolved somewhat amicably if they're on decent terms here. So uh, with that, uh, Haley, uh, I think you got the next story for us. I do. Let's turn now to a case that did not make it to a trial. The Justice Department was recently dealt a really big blow in its antitrust enforcement efforts. 
Prosecutors had targeted deals that they said were intended to fix wages or restrict recruitment and hiring in the aerospace industry. But a Connecticut federal judge has thrown out those charges, ruling that no reasonable juror could convict the industry bosses based on the DOJ's evidence. It's the first time in decades that criminal antitrust charges have been tossed under the specific criminal procedure rule cited by the judge. However, it's just the latest in a string of criminal antitrust losses for the DOJ, which is especially struggling with these labor side antitrust charges. Yeah, I wanted to get into this because, you know, my gut reaction is DOJ wins a lot of stuff. But yeah, I want you to disabuse me of that and tell me what's really going on on the ground. Let's start with what the actual allegations were here. Prosecutors claimed that six aerospace and staffing company bosses had agreements basically not to hire one another's workers. And according to the government, these sorts of no-poach deals keep wages low and limit competition for talent. So District Judge Victor Bolden said, no, I don't agree. (laughs) He said, workers were still able to switch between different engineering staffing companies. And that means there's really just been no showing of an illegal market allocation for labor. The alleged agreement had so many exceptions that it could not be said to meaningfully allocate the labor market of engineers from the supplier companies working on projects, according to the judge. And he said, sure, you know, there is some evidence of restrictions, but the restrictions were shifting constantly. And that suggests that hiring was permitted and at times even on a pretty broad scale. We've touched on this here and there, We love a trend story, and it seems like the Justice Department is kind of catching some L's on the uh, antitrust front. What's the broad picture look like there? Yeah, historically, the DOJ has only targeted these sorts of things, these alleged labor-side antitrust violations in civil cases, and it only just started bringing these criminal ones in 2020. So it's really a new endeavor, a new approach Um, And the DOJ's antitrust division has said these criminal prosecutions are still a big priority for the agency. However, so far, as you mentioned, Alex, they've been taking some L's. The DOJ has failed to win a single jury conviction in its criminal (laughs) cases against these alleged deals. Juries have rejected every labor side antitrust charge that has made it to them. And while the Justice Department did secure a pair of convictions. Those came from plea deals, so did not make it to the jury. Even outside of the labor context, the DOJ's antitrust division has been struggling. Last fall, prosecutors dropped the last pending case over price fixing in the chicken industry. I'm sure you guys have many recollections of those sprawling cases coming from those chicken wars, those chickens, (laughs) but a judge. So that was a big loss because a judge excluded a lot of the evidence that prosecutors presented against some former chicken executives. So not looking great. Yeah, you're painting a pretty doom and gloom portrait here of what's going on with DOJ's antitrust division. Is there any reaction to that? Like what are attorneys, court watchers, what are they seeing? Two Law 360 reporters, Brian Koenig and Nadia Dreed, spoke with several attorneys about this, and they were all pretty critical of the DOJ's antitrust division. One attorney who was representing one of these executives called the criminal antitrust cases a misguided policy experiment. 
He said prosecutors are essentially trying to criminalize HR issues. Another attorney said the DOJ is clearly making bad charging decisions and it's showing. But, you know, meanwhile, the head of the antitrust division, Jonathan Cantor, told Law360 that he has been telling his staffers to listen to Tom Petty's I Won't Back Down and dance like (laughs) no one's watching in the wake of these losses. So clearly the DOJ uh, is still in good spirits, at least publicly, um, and has no plans to back off these sorts of things. Haley, I had no idea that both of our stories would have musical references in them. I know. Great stuff. I really was not (laughs) expecting it in this one, I gotta say. Well, until they actually get a trial win, I would say they're running down a dream. Oh, is you did uh, what it, it oh, sounds boy. like. You did it. <laughs> he just picked the wrong Tom Petty song here. Um, but uh, a super interesting story and a super interesting uh, trend that's clearly materializing here. So uh, a lot to keep our eyes on. After a year of public sniping, the Walt Disney Company and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are going to court. What began as a bitter fight over a state education law has since ballooned into a legal standoff over the state's control of the massive plot of land that makes up Disney's hospitality empire. The saga has, to this point, been mostly political, but the dueling lawsuits filed by Disney and DeSantis will put complex and crucial questions to the court. Here to untangle the particulars of this heated feud is Law360 senior reporter Nathan Hale. Welcome to the show, Nathan. Hi, thanks for having me. Nathan, you are making your pro se debut. And also, I just kind of want to, in case it sort of set an alarm bell off in any of the ears of the listeners, I do want to give you some room to explain a little bit here about the unique nature of your name and your connection to a figure in uh, a very important figure in American history. Tell us about it. Sure. Thanks. So yeah, um, I, I get all kinds of questions. I think going into journalism, I hadn't uh, anticipated <laughs> before picking my career how often I'd be, you know, calling somebody new every day and yeah, and see you know who who says you know Nathan Hale and who you know who just kind of passes by them without thinking about it. But yes, I, I am actually related to the uh, American Revolutionary War hero. Um, he's my well, he had no children since he was hanged at the age of twenty-one. So <laughs> yes. I'm descended from his brother Enoch, and he was my. Great, 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 great uncle, though. So, yep, so definitely an interesting little connection there. And so I'm proud of <laughs> Well, we're honored. Well, with that out of the way, let's, uh, this has been very well covered in the mainstream press. We're going to cut through most of the politics here, I hope, and get to the pressing legal questions. But we do need a little bit of backdrop. How did this, like, fracas between the Florida governor and the Walt Disney Company come to be? Sure. So this has been a, a feud that really has been building for a little bit longer than even a whole year. It started last spring when the Florida legislature was looking to pass what's known as the Parental Rights and Education Act, but which uh, detractors have come to call the Don't Say Gay Law, um, which basically restricts classroom instruction on gender and sexual orientation from uh, kindergarten to third grade. The legislature actually has expanded that to even higher grades this year. Disney actually took a quiet approach to this at first, but then drew some criticism, including from employees, for not joining what was a growing outcry against against the bill. They tried to approach the governor quietly, but then the governor came out and 
criticized the company as quote unquote woke Disney and for basically repeating what he called democratic propaganda. Um, once the bill passed, Disney came out and was more public about this and said that they felt that the law should never have been passed and that they would you know, support efforts to see it overturned or vacated. Um, at that point, DeSantis said he felt the company had crossed the line and really launched this, what's now become this campaign against the company. And basically, this took a focus on looking at the Reedy Creek Improvement District, which was a special district the state had approved in 1967 for Walt Disney when he had purchased a huge swath of land in central Florida near Orlando, where he decided he wanted to, to build Disney World. And so DeSantis basically mustered the uh, Republican also uh, controlled legislature. And last spring, in a special session, they initially passed one bill, which was going to dissolve the district. They ran into some issues when they realized that that might result in over a billion dollars in Disney debt, as well as burdens like maintaining roads and utilities falling onto the uh, local community around the district. Um, so that basically led to, in February, the legislature coming back. And instead of dissolving the district, they passed another bill, which renamed it the Central Florida Tourism Oversight District. And it dismissed the existing board, which was basically made up of handpicked um, employees from Disney who happened to live within the district, and handed the authority to the governor to appoint the five-member board himself. There were initially Disney issued a statement saying they weren't going to dispute this. But then it has since come out in the last few months that Disney actually managed to get some agreements in kind of at the last minute with the uh, outgoing board, which basically undercut any power that the new board had in terms of controlling development on the property and, and let Disney still have broad, you know, broad rights over that. Um, there's been a few kind of punches back and forth since then with the Sanders saying he was going to make sure that was voided. And Disney then said it had no choice but to, to bring its lawsuit. Yeah, and that brings us up to date here. Last week, Disney formally sued the state. And, you know, you, you've already alluded to it. They were in sort of a unique position that I that is not common for many businesses where they have basically this fiefdom over this very, you know, expensive land and, and profitable land for them in Central Florida. But let's just get to the basics of the Disney suit here. What is the company saying that DeSantis and the state have done to wrong them? Sure. So Disney filed a lawsuit in federal court, which is interesting. We'll get into there's another lawsuit filed later against Disney in state court. But Disney filed their lawsuit in federal court against uh, they named DeSantis, uh, another government official and basically the new members of the, the board. And they brought basically four claims. They said that they had violated the contracts clause of the Constitution, which says that no party, no state, sorry, shall pass any law that impairs contract obligations. And they basically said that by declaring Disney's contracts void, they were doing this without necessary or valid reasons. They also said that the uh, action that the legislature and the state had taken violated the takings clause and it amounted to a taking of uh, Disney's property without just compensation. Additionally, they said that they brought a claim under the due process clause, the 14th Amendment, and that kind of goes back to the contract clause violation and said that the legislative action 
was uh, you know, violating their contracts without a rational basis, and that the, you know the state basically, and state and the new board can't do this, and they didn't they didn't have a rational basis for for singling them out. And then the last one was a uh, First Amendment free speech uh, claim that said that the statements they had made against the Don't Say Gay bill were protected language, and that the new board had taken retaliatory interference with their contracts. And it, it, as a result, it chilled and continued to chill Disney's protected speech. As a result of them speaking out against this bill. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a squarely retaliatory yeah. action. Yeah. And then, as you already alluded to, so, I mean, that sort of lays out what Disney's beef is with the state's action. But as you already alluded to, Florida has struck back, this time in state court. And this is this gets tough to kind of keep track of, but... Florida has already taken administrative action against Disney. What is their lawsuit now against Disney uh, all about? Sure. Yeah. So as you mentioned, the there were there been a, there's kind of a number of like, multiple fronts in this in this war, I guess. But yes. um, so the uh, this new the new board that just took it came in to take over the district. They came out and found on their own and said that there are you know legal infirmities in in these agreements that Disney got put in place. And they hold that that's enough that they, you know, they can find them invalid. But they said, you know, there was uncertainty because Disney was still claiming that these agreements were valid, that they needed to bring a lawsuit. So they filed a lawsuit in state court um, in the Orlando area. And they basically, they brought nine different counts. Um, they kind of range, some of them are quite technical. Like they say that the, for the outgoing Reedy Creek district to have um, entered into a development agreement, the law says they had to pass an ordinance of saying they could. First. Yeah, a lot of a lot of so, municipal lot of kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, another big issue has been that they claim that Disney did not follow the proper uh, public notice for these having the meeting where they were going to pass these agreements. Um, that's kind of been more interesting one because it did seem that nobody noticed that Disney was doing this. Um, Disney says that they you know they had fully followed what they needed to, and then some of the other counts basically go into a bit to the merits that the agreements are unconscionable or they don't really give valid consideration in return for the, all this development rights that Disney's getting and that they also, you know, they delegate away governmental power, you know, without authority. So, you know, that kind of fairly standard stuff. It makes sense if you think about it, because if the crux of Disney's lawsuit is that, you know, the state is sort of interfering with these agreements that it has, it makes sense then that the state would then file suits saying like, actually, these agreements aren't actually like, you know, don't pass a lot of legal muster anyway. And we, and we kind of want to use our lawsuit to knock them out. It does make a little bit of sort of tactical sense when you look at it that way. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, it is interesting. I've talked to a few experts, attorneys who have, who have, have raised the thought that the fact that they're filing the lawsuit shows a, you know, that they have some question or weakness and whether they had the authority, you know, to just find it void in the first place. And, And on top of this, DeSantis has also pushed the legislature to pass bills that create additional provisions allowing for these, uh, you know, for these agreements to be voided as well. So yeah. there, there's sort of multiple layers that they're going after this. But, yeah, it's yeah. almost like, I'm sure those people would say it's almost like he doth protest too much if he needs to take a preemptive strike at the agreements themselves. But both of these lawsuits have been filed within the last eight or nine days, basically. So it's early days. There hasn't been a lot of development since they've been filed. But there have been a few interesting things. What have we seen so far as these lawsuits begin coursing their way 
through the courts. Sure. I mean, the, the, the most notable thing we've seen is that one of the judges in the federal case, one that Disney had brought, recused himself. And he cited that he had kind of financial ties to the out- potential outcome, which, as I understand it, was that a relative, he says, you know, was employed by, I guess, one of the parties who obviously must be Disney, I, I expect. Um, yeah. It, seem, it's, it does seem like a fairly extended um, connection, possibly, you know, we don't know exactly who the relation is, I think, but but it does sort of show the the breadth and the size of Disney and the importance of the you know of this company to the state. It's one of the biggest employers in the state. It's you know one of the biggest taxpayers, and you know done a lot in terms of building the whole area where it is. Yeah, I, th- I thought that was interesting, and to the point you just made that the it is a huge commercial presence in the state, and it took all of like you know a week for the magistrate judge hearing the case to even even at a distance, as you noted, just kind of say, you know what? It's a little too close for me. We'll pass it off to somebody else. Yeah. We'll get you out of here on this. Um, like I say, it's we're, we're, we're in the early stages. I know you've been doing some reporting about, you know, how people expect these cases to play out. These are novel issues, obviously, because Disney is a very you know, uniquely situated company in the state of Florida. What are you going to be watching for as these two cases surge ahead here? Yeah, so we now have obviously the, the two fronts, you know, the two different you know, cases in two different courts. Um, it's interesting that we have the one in federal court and one in state court. From, you know, from what I, the experts I've been speaking to, it seems there are a few possible paths that have been suggested to me. Um, one is that uh, will we see an intervention by, in, you know, probably in the state court case, maybe by the former board members of the district who, as I mentioned, um, the way it was structured, they are basically Disney employees who yeah. live. They are actually, it is actually like an, you know, kind of elected board and in many respects is like other special districts. And there are a very small number of people who live within the district, mm-hmm. but because Disney owns all the land, there's, it's kind of a complicated Setup, but um, but Disney sort of deeds them land, and then has you know is, was able to sort of handpick, you know who they would approve would be on the board. But you know lawyers have said to me that those people though are residents of the district, and they are the ones who seem to clearly have standing to say we are going to be affected by, you know what happens with the development here. Um, we didn't mention actually that one at one point the governor threw out at a press conference you know some possibilities of what kind of threats almost of, you know, what could happen on this property that maybe it could be developed further, that maybe they could put tolls on the roads there outside of Disney World, or they could let some other theme parks be built next door to Disney World, or even throughout the idea of possibly a state prison being built on the land there. I do remember um, so, that, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so these district members seem to, you know, they're people who live there. They seem to fit the definition of affected, you know, residents, um, affected individuals. So we could see them maybe intervene and say, you know, we think these development agreements, we like them, you know, and they should stay. Mm-hmm. Um, we could also maybe see Disney file a motion to dismiss the state case and say that the new board, who happen to all be residents of other parts of the state, do not have standing to, you know, to have brought this lawsuit. And then another possibility was I heard was that, you know, that maybe Disney would try to remove the state court case to federal court. It was file the the entity that is named as the defendant in the state court case, you know, and that brought the federal one is a Florida based, you know, Disney entity entity, but um may, you know, but 
Disney's parent company, Walt Disney Company, is based in California. So they could claim diversity you know, in the courts and that it should be in federal court and then try to get it consolidated maybe with, with their own case. So, you know, so it seems like there are a few, few strategies. Not, not, I haven't heard as much about what the state strategy you know, might be in the court, but we'll have to keep an eye out and see. I'm so glad we got all the way through this, and not until just this moment did we even mention that DeSantis is flirting with a presidential run. <laughs> we are focused, of course, here on the uh, on the squarely legal questions, and they're very unique and very interesting. And uh, I thank you, Nathan, for coming on Pro Se to talk through them with us. Sure. Thanks for having me. I think that'll just about wrap us up for today's show. I'm pulling together a playlist, I think. I got some Sheeran. I got some Petty. I got some, some Marvin, Marvin Gaye. Gaye. Yeah, That's right. please. Yeah. yeah. A real musical episode for yeah. us. Honestly, sounds like a pretty good playlist. And maybe some Disney show tunes. I don't know. Ooh, <laughs> oh, no. There we now go. you've done it. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for being with me today, Alex. Thank you, Amber. And also, Haley. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guests this week, Nathan Hale, and our contributing reporters, Rachel Scharf, Brian Koenig, and Nadia Dreed. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, that's when you can help us out by leaving a written review and five stars. It really does help other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.